Daniel 2, 1-49 One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him so much that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that troubles me. Tell me what I dreamed, for I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king! Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be demolished into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, Please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I can see through your trick. You are trying to stall for time because you know I am serious about what I said. If you don't tell me the dream, you will be condemned. You have conspired to tell me lies in hope that something will change. But tell me the dream, and then I will know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, There isn't a man alive who can tell your majesty his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. This is an impossible thing the king requires. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he sent out orders to execute all the wise men of Babylon. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time so he could tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, saying, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he alone has all wisdom and power. He determines the course of the world events. He removes kings and sets others on the throne. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he himself is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, who had been ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. So Arioch quickly ushered Daniel into the king's presence, saying to him, I have found a man from the captives of Judah who can make known the interpretation to the king. The king then asked Daniel, whose name was also Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I saw, as well as its interpretation? Daniel replied to the king, The mystery that the king is asking about is such that no wise men, astrologers, magicians, or diviners can possibly disclose it to the king. 
However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the time to come. The dreams and the visions you had while lying on your bed are as follows. As for you, O king, while you were in your bed, your thoughts turned to future things. The revealer of mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, this mystery was revealed to me, not because I possess more wisdom than any other living person, but so that the king may understand the interpretation and comprehend the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were watching as a great statue. One of impressive size and extraordinary brightness was standing before you. Its appearance caused alarm. As for that statue, its head was fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs were of bronze, its legs were of iron, its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. You were watching as a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its iron and clay feet, breaking them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were broken in pieces without distinction and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors that the wind carries away. Not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a large mountain that filled the entire earth. This was the dream. Now we will set forth before the king its interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has granted you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. Where, wherever human beings, wild animals, and birds of the sky live, he has given them into your power. He has given you authority over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, after you, another kingdom will rise, one inferior to yours. Then a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule in all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, one strong like iron. Just like iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and as iron breaks in pieces all these metals, so it will break in pieces and crush the others. In that you were seeing feet and toes partly of wet clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Some of the strength of iron will be in it, for you saw iron mixed with wet clay. In that the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, the latter stages of this kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. And in that you saw iron mixed with wet clay, so people will be mixed with one another without adhering to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will raise up an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed and a kingdom that will not be left to another people. It will break in pieces and bring about the demise of all these kingdoms, but it will stand forever. You saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It smashed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold into pieces. The great God has made known to the king what will occur in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar bowed down with his face to the ground and paid homage to Daniel. He gave orders to offer sacrifice and incense to him, 
The king replied to Daniel, Certainly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king elevated Daniel to high position and bestowed on him many marvelous gifts. He granted him authority over the entire province of Babylon and made him the main prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon. Daniel himself served in the king's court. When each of our kids turned five, we took them on a special trip to Disneyland. Five is an incredible age to take kids to Disneyland because five-year-olds are still young enough to be mesmerized by princesses and Disney characters, but they're old enough to enjoy some of the rides. And as a parent, it was a joy to experience the awe and wonder of a child, to suspend criticism for just a little bit, and to pretend like I didn't think about how all the things work. I could just enjoy the experience. For the most part, simply enjoying the experience at face value is the best way to enjoy Disneyland. It's not as much fun if you're trying to figure out how do all those girls who play Snow White have the same exact signature? Or I wonder what the maintenance schedule is on the roller coasters here. Well, one thing I noticed is that my kids were much more comfortable going on the rides where they could see the beginning, middle, and end. Now, there's some rides like Thunder Mountain or Radiator Springs Racing that... that have unseen parts in the middle, but you can totally pe see people starting on the ride and then getting off the ride and having an incredibly big smile on their face. And I think that that makes all the difference, being able to see the, 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 the beginning and the end and the joy. Now, Space Mountain is another story. When our kids were old enough to ride it, we had to do a lot of work to talk them into the experience. We had to convince them that it would be okay without any proof of sight. See, you can't see the track. You can't really even see how it begins or how it ends until you get on it. Even in the midst of the ride, there are surprises, chaos, it seems, at every turn. And it can be terrifying for the first-time rider. Now, there are some extreme rides at that park with faster speeds than, than Space Mountain and inverted tracks and more Gs, but they aren't necessarily as scary because you can see how the ride ends. Everyone gets off with a big smile on their face. Life is a lot like Space Mountain. It can feel chaotic. I read where, for the second time in history, we have already gone through the whole alphabet in naming tropical storms and hurricanes this year, and now we're on to the Greek alphabet. That's a lot of storms, and there's still a couple months of storm season left to go. We're in the midst of some of the worst fires the West Coast has ever seen, and we're in a highly contested and polarized election year, with huge issues on the line, exacerbated by the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the opening of a Supreme Court seat. We've got racial injustice and rioting and abuses by police and abuses toward police. And we're still in the midst of a global pandemic that's affecting our mental health, our economic stability, and further calling into question whether or not we can trust our elected leaders to tell us the truth and to do the right thing. It feels like we're living a Space Mountain experience of chaos, but it's not a theme park ride, it's reality. These feelings are real and true, 
But God has something to say that is true as well. In fact, God has something he wants to show us. He wants to show us how all of this ends. He wants to give us a behind-the-scenes picture that will inspire confidence even in the midst of chaos. And it's to that picture, that revelation, that we turn to now in the story of Daniel chapter 2. Would you pray with me? Living God, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is you have not only to say to us, but to show us through the pictures in this sermon, in, in this text. We pray that you would give us firm confidence in the midst of what feels like chaos. Thank you, Lord, that you are trustworthy. Amen. So in the first 13 verses of Daniel chapter 2, we see a scene set before us. King Nebuchadnezzar has been having dreams, troubling dreams, so troubling that he's been losing sleep over them. And as a result, he calls some of these experts from his house of wise men. Specifically, he calls magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, or master astrologers, to his court. Now notice, he didn't call any psychoanalysts or neurologists. Those things didn't exist and wouldn't exist for thousands of years. Like today, when we have strange dreams, we associate them with unresolved conflict or maybe something strange we ate before dinner. Studies have shown that eating meals high in protein right before you go to sleep can give you more vivid dreams. All that to say, we think about dreams in a much different way than ancient people did. The people in Daniel chapter 2, for them, dreams were signs or revelations from the gods or goddesses about what was going on in real time or about something that might happen in the future. And over the years, ancient cultures compiled, compiled dream books in, in which they chronicled dreams of influential people and then associated them with national or world events. And we actually have some portions of these amazing books through the hard work of archaeologists. The, the books are massive, and there's just many volumes per, uh, per edition. And so only experts would know where to look and how to find the pertinent information. Now, in a normal setting, someone would tell the diviner, these magicians and people that Nebuchadnezzar brought to his court, they would tell them the dream in detail, and then that diviner would consult the dream books and find similar dreams and outcomes to those dreams to try and make a prediction. So when the king calls these experts to his court, they're confident that they can bring some relief to the king's anxiety. But soon we learn that this is no ordinary dream, no ordinary situation. For some reason, the king will not tell the diviners the content of his dream. Now, some people speculate that Nebuchadnezzar simply forgot the details, and, but I think that there seems to be much more than that going on here. The king seems to know that the, these diviners, historically, tend to tell kings what they want to hear rather than the harsh truth. After all, there are lots of historical examples of kings killing their advisors until they find just the right subjects who will make them feel good rather than tell it like it is. In some ways, kings and dream interpreters play a complicated game together. My grandfather used to play this little trick where he would say, hold on, what's this? And he would quickly move his hand behind my ear and produce a 50 cent piece. Now, I would play along and act surprised, and in, in such a way, we had this little exchange going on. 
He knew that I didn't think he was making a coin appear out of thin air, but I, I played along with him and we were able to express love. I knew it wasn't real magic, but I appreciated the relational moment and, hey, I got a 50 cent piece, so that was a win-win for everybody. But in this instance, something makes Nebuchadnezzar realize that the stakes are higher. That this little game of, I tell you my dream, and you make me feel good, or maybe present a problem for the nation that I can solve and make myself look good as king, whatever the dream was, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, had a sense that it was real. And I'll tell you why. His dream wasn't just a subconscious firing of the synapses. It was a vision from the living God. And it got his attention loud and clear. In fact, it terrified him. So Nebuchadnezzar is doubtful that his experts will give him the truth. So he requires that they not only interpret his dream, but that they tell him what the dream was in detail. And if they could do that, surmises Nebuchadnezzar, then they must know what they're talking about. Three times they push back. And finally, they set the stage for the story by saying this, The thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is none else who could declare it to the king, except gods or goddesses whose dwelling place is not in mortal flesh. Well, what's to be done? And you can hear the music, dun, dun, dun. The impossible task is at hand. Now, the king is enraged, and he orders all his wise men to be killed if they can't do what he says. His chief captain, Arioch, sends, is, is sent out to destroy all the wise men, including Daniel and his friends, who apparently haven't heard yet what's going on. Now, there's a question here. Why weren't they summoned to the king's court? And why would they be culpable of death if they weren't there in the first place to interpret the dream? Well, much of the confusion we have comes from Daniel 1, 19 and 20, where the narrator tells us that Daniel and his friends entered the king's personal service and that their wisdom was 10 times greater than the magicians and the conjurers in his realm. But a careful reading of the text clarifies two things. First, just because the narrator tells us that Daniel and his friends served in the king's court doesn't mean that they were serving in his court in the time period described in Daniel chapter 2. After all, Daniel 1 describes some things that happened decades after, for example, Daniel serving in King Cyrus's court. Okay? Number two, while the narrator is clear that Daniel and his friends are part of the group called wise men and advisors in the king's court, it nowhere says that they were part of the group of diviners or conjurers. That group would have been called upon to interpret the dreams. In fact, the text says that they were 10 times better than the conjurers and musicians, uh, not musicians, maybe they were good, but magicians, okay? But it did not say that they were 10 times better than the other conjurers and magicians, meaning that they were not themselves in the group of conjurers and magicians, okay? So let, let me sum this up. The house of wise men included many different disciplines and experts. One could be a wise man and not be a conjurer or a diviner or a magician. But all conjurers and magici magicians were wise men. Okay? So therefore, Daniel and his friends are in danger because they belong to this house of wise men. And Daniel the wise does wise things. He uses his position to gain audience with the king and receive a stay of execution. He got himself time to interpret the dream. And then he wisely goes to his source, 
he prays and invites his faithful friends to pray with him. The dream experts were right. No mortal human being could do what the king was asking. And that's why Daniel asked God for help. This is true faith. It is trust in God. And I want to pause to make this point. For some reason, the church, in America in particular, has tended to separate faith and training. Some branches of the church emphasize human reason and activity so much that they seem to be trying to live out the kingdom of God that they see described in the Bible through their actions, but without really trusting in Jesus. They use the name of Jesus, but don't rely on the power of Jesus. Okay? But on the other side of the coin uh, is large groups in the church who claim to have faith in God, but almost act as if reason and education and training are proof that you don't have any faith. They've replaced faith with a sort of Christian magic. So it's like those signs you might see on the side of the road lately that say something like, Jesus is bigger than the coronavirus. Well, yes, as a follower of Jesus, I don't really question that reality. But does that mean that the brain Jesus gave me to understand the way viruses work and the way that they spread should be thrown aside? Does it mean that if I ignore reality that somehow I'm being more faithful? Friends, if we're going to live in exile or chaos or 2020, whatever it is you want to call this bizarro season that we're in, we would do well to see what Daniel does. He worked hard. He became educated. He put in the effort to understand his culture and the way that they thought. I mean, why did God speak to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream in the first place? Because that's how ancient peoples thought that the God spoke. Daniel's diligence in the things of the world and learning them gave him credibility to be called upon in the first place. But just as important as Daniel's worldly education and training was his faith. He was truly in a situation that he couldn't control. He was facing a problem beyond his expertise and outside the range of his technical ability. This is God territory he's in. And I would argue that no matter how confident you are in your day-to-day work and life, you're always in God territory. God can always reveal things that our best thinking and our experience can't reveal on their own. So whereas the conjurers and their dream interpretation books relied on technique alone, Daniel had learned to rely on God, which is a relational reality. He's trusting in a person, not just a book. He's relying on God, not just the best thoughts of people. And I'll say one more thing about Daniel's prayers. His first prayer is a prayer for help. That's where we need to start. But his second prayer, his longer prayer, is a prayer of thanksgiving to the God who heard him and provided the answer to his need. If you want to grow in faith, learn to give thanks for all good things. For all good things are gifts from God. So Daniel goes to the king and is able to articulate the dream that the king had. And he makes sure to, know, to, to stay out loud that no man, not even Daniel, can do what the king has asked. But then he adds that his God could do it. And it is God who not only revealed the dream to Daniel, but also its interpretation. 
And he talks about this massive statue with a gold head and a chest and arms of silver and thighs of bronze and iron uh, in his legs and feet partially of iron and partially of clay. And then another character comes into the scene. A stone, not cut by human hands, crashes into the feet, destroys the whole statue so badly that it all becomes dust and is blown away by the wind. Now, scholars have gone round and round over the meaning of this vision. Two parts are sure. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and the stone that destroys the statue is the kingdom of God. Now, theories abound about the other parts of the statue. Not surprisingly, the interpreters from the 2nd century BC see Greece as the fourth kingdom, since at that time Greece was the major power. And in the 1st century AD, interpreters of this same passage saw, saw the fourth kingdom as Rome, since Rome was in power at the time. And what I find fascinating is that in a way, both of those interpretations could be right. Because in ancient accounting of dreams and prophecies, future kingdoms are often listed in groups of four. And here's the interesting part. The fourth kingdom in these ancient lists are usually left intentionally vague so that they can apply to whatever oppressive power is in charge at the time. So we would do well not to get hung up on trying to assign literal political regimes to every kind of metal in the statue in the dream. Because the main point is that despite the apparent might of the world powers, whoever they are, God's kingdom is the one that will not only destroy the unjust, but it will last forever. So God, through his vision, is showing us that no matter what chaos looks like in the world, we can trust that his kingdom will judge injustice and will outlast all other kingdoms. And so we're encouraged to engage in the world but not despair. God's kingdom is where we can safely put our hope and our faith, and we can have confidence in the midst of chaos. Now, as we close, I want to point out one more piece of surprising good news about the story. You can't really tell by reading in the English translations that most of us read, but starting at verse 4 of Daniel 2, it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic all the way through the end of Daniel chapter 7. Now, why would that be? After all, it's part of the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is, and it's intended to encourage Jews in exile, and later Jews under Greek and Roman occupation, and later than that, those of us trying to follow Jesus in any time in the world history. So I think that the reason we have this section in Aramaic is so that the captors, the Babylonians, receive the gospel as well. God has grace on Nebuchadnezzar and his people, God cares about the oppressors as well as the captives, because oppressors are just captives in disguise. While he will judge evil in the last day, he will continue to extend grace to all people as long as there is time. What grace and mercy! What person in your life have you written off? Maybe it's someone on the other side of the political aisle, to the left of you, or to the right of you politically. Maybe someone has hurt you or says the most offensive things on social media. Whatever it is, if God can reach out with grace and mercy to the king of Babylon, can he not also reach your friend 
or neighbor or child or parent or politician or activist, can he not also reach you where you're at when you're feeling lost and disconnected? He can. Since we can have confidence in Jesus even in the chaos, what have we to fear in praying for others, even and especially our enemies?